My name is Captain Zach, and this is Along the Keel. As a lifelong waterman, I have gone coast to coast having opportunities to rub elbows with some incredibly hardworking men and women who have built their lives by the shoreline. I take you behind the scenes of some of the most iconic coastal brands, chat with entrepreneurs, and chop it up with the people who are making a difference on our coastal communities. Born from the need, built by the water, get ready to earn your summer. What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Along the Keel. And in this episode of the podcast, we're talking with Stephen Wilcox, the founder of Parkit. And after looking under the hood of hundreds of incredible brands, some of which are some of the most well-known surf brands and outdoor brands uh, in history, Stephen knew that he had the recipe for success. It was only a matter of time that he was waiting for the right moment, the right idea to strike for him to go on and follow his dreams of becoming an entrepreneur. And it wasn't until a trip with friends, some added stress, and a broken camping chair that his hunger to follow his entrepreneurial spirit would be kicked into full drive and would allow him to create the world's best, I'm not going to say beach chair, I'm not going to say camping chair, adventure chair, because that's exactly what it is. It's a chair that does it all and is pretty unbeatable. You guys got to check this thing out. So it was awesome to be able to talk with Steven all about how everything came to be, his career as a marketer in the outdoor industry, but better yet, just the simple conversations around why everyone should be able to go surfing or do something that they love in the outdoors and how important it is to our society of just being in the outdoors. So that and more on this episode of the podcast, make sure to check us out on social media, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, as well as on our YouTube channel, and go sign up for a newsletter. We got some really cool announcements coming this October, which is now, which is meaning you should go and sign up right now because in the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a huge revamp of the website. Well, we already did it. It's just going to be launched. So check it out. And uh, stay tuned. And I hope you guys enjoy this episode of Along the Keel. You know when a bartender uh, throws a beer down like the, the bar and it slides yeah, perfectly to the customer's hand? Yep. We were at one end of the container, sliding chairs down to the other end. Guys at no the other shit. end were catching them, putting them, on a, putting them on a pallet block, picking that pallet block and bringing that into the warehouse and then stacking them in an organized way in the warehouse. So, yeah. Um, I'm very happy to be just in sweats today and not lifting anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So now how many chairs did you wind up moving? Um, we moved yesterday. We moved 1,200. And then that's the last oh, of our crap. first purchase order. There okay. was a total in our first PO of about 5,000 units. And those, uh, those 3,800 uh, that aren't accounted for in the story so far, those are at distribution centers in okay. Indiana and Carlsbad, which are helping serve all of our pre-order campaigns uh, that we mm. ran over the last year. So uh, they're helping those go out the door as quickly as possible since they're, you know, a 3PL with basically, you know, think of a, a junior UPS. Mm -hmm. um, so they're doing that. And uh, we've now stocked up our warehouse. So as soon as they burn through all of their units on their end, we'll start shipping out of our warehouse. So interesting, exciting, interesting. very exciting. Yeah, wicked exciting for sure. You know, it's interesting. I was actually, I've been looking through PLs quite a bit lately um, for an e-commerce site that we're, we're looking to start pretty soon. And uh, it's just kind of in the works. Now, when you say 3PL and you, you have your own warehouse, 
what is that like why did you choose to have your own warehouse in addition to the 3pls like why not just go full force into the third party logistics yeah it was a decision that we made a long time ago um mm-hmm. before we get into some of this stuff i just wanted to just double check with you you mentioned it'd be super conversational today but is there like an intro or anything that you normally do i like no, i feel like we already started start, i was gonna say <laughs> i'm like i feel like we're just jumping straight in here so super cool um yeah so 3pls um in general like when we first, so I'll back this up a bit because it, it plays into like the whole story of how Parkit became a business. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like we had designed the product, which we can get into. We we went through prototype revisions and um, we were like basically at the position with our factories overseas where they were like, this is your minimum order quantity. And right. I remember seeing this number from them being like, oh, crap, how on earth are we going to sell that many units? Mm. And um it was just like this, like in my mind, it felt really daunting at the time. And so we were trying to minimize like every expense we could. We were like, okay, like how can we minimize our warehousing cost? Oh, cool. Your uncle has a warehouse in Carlsbad that he's only using half of it for. Like this is perfect. Hey, uncle, mm-hmm. can I borrow some space in your warehouse for my product? Yep. Um, I don't know how long I'll be using that space. I anticipate that we'll grow out of it, um, but would love to do that. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Use that space. No one's using it. It's kind of just empty. We basically have just been storing people's rvs and jet skis in it right so we moved those things out and we planned to basically put our product in there and he was going to let us store it for free and when you have a product like ours it's really big that uh that footprint that you take up in the store is going to be rather expensive or not in the store but in the warehouse is going to be rather Mm. expensive yeah so that was a cost that i was like okay well we have to order x amount of units i don't know how fast we're going to sell those I don't know what that warehousing cost is going to be. I mm. want to make sure that we, you know, can kind of eliminate that in the beginning. And then as the business grows and we know, all right, cool, we're selling 500 units a month. We're selling 5,000 units a month. Like as we grow and then we're in that window, like right. we'll know how much space we need, how fast the turnover is. Like you start to get into the cycle of the of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was really just a decision to minimize those costs and, and make that like a really easy process. And now we're at a stage where I'm like, maybe we didn't need that. But we've got that's the way that we set it up in the beginning. And so we've got probably six months to a year um, shipping out of my uncle's warehouse and where I'm going to become an expert in basically like 3PL management and what's required to actually pick, pack, label, how to organize it. And so that way, you know, I I figure there's a long term benefit to it where we'll be able to just pop into like a pop into a bunch of 3PLs and go, what's your process? And when they explain their process, I can go, that matches what we do. Perfect. You're going to be a great fit. Because it's right. different for every different 3PL and they all have their own stuff. So I think it'll be a good thing for us. But that's kind of how that, that's the long-winded story of how uh, how we ended up <laughs> storing stuff on our own uh, yeah. without using a 3PL in the very beginning. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to think about, right? Because you have the product, but now you have to distribute it, you know? And, and setting up the website and getting all the products there is is kind of the easy part, but it's all the back-end stuff that you have to do that... From my experience and my buddy who has a coffee company, um, John, who I've talked about on this on the podcast several times, you know, we've talked about even doing our own third party logistics company and, you know, just the process that goes into it because he has a big warehouse and he has a ton of extra space sitting around. So he looked into subleasing and then, you know, he does a lot of fulfillment through him through his own coffee company. And, you know, that was that was a conversation we had, you know, a, a long time ago now, but super interesting stuff. You know, and with your product being so big, um, you know, that's a lot of pallet space and they do it per yep. pallet, you know, from what I've seen. So, yeah, exactly. How many- and, and if we if we can do it, like what we've learned is like, like even with our containers and, you know, like that logistics, you've glad you brought that up. Like my cousin helped me. My cousin just graduated from college at LMU mm-hmm. and 
Um, he's on the job hunt right now. But I shot him a text message. I'm like, hey, I've got two containers showing up. We're gonna unload them. You want to make a quick, easy, like 150 bucks? Cruise on over. We're gonna we're gonna unload these things. So he comes over yesterday, and he sees the truck pull up, and he sees all the boxes in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, we finish the first truck, and we go get some food before the second truck gets there. And he's like, I had never thought about like the <laughs> things that go that 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 products go through to get to me. Like I just go on a right. website and I like order it, and then like three days later. It's oh my there. God, it's at my doorstep. Like, yeah, awesome. Right. I've got my new hat, my new shoes. And he started asking me a ton of questions about like what even goes into it. And I was like, well, like before I launched Park It, I was a marketing person, mm-hmm. like just on a marketing teams at like action sports companies and was a brand consultant for a number of like smaller businesses as well. And like, I never thought about the the, the work that goes into actually getting a product to the warehouse and then to the customer. I was always like, oh, cool. We've got these cool sunglasses. What can we do from a marketing standpoint to help sell these sunglasses? <laughs> right. I didn't think about the engineers that had gone through and done like thousands of fit tests or the little like the mm-hmm. minor variations or, or selection process on like, why is this piece of the chair this way versus like, every other company that does it this way and like mm-hmm. those little things that engineers have just like sifted through every bit and piece of spent hours like, doing it yeah like one we don't think about that and then two you get into the world of like okay now how are we going to produce this product that our engineers have designed mm-hmm. and you've got to find suppliers with raw materials you've got to get the raw materials to a factory that has the equipment to manufacture the raw material into the product right um, then you've got to get that that product into a packaging plant where it gets, you know, stuffed and wrapped and protected and mm-hmm. the car- big cardboard box goes over and sealed that gets loaded into a container that gets put onto a boat that comes across an ocean that goes into a port that gets loaded onto a truck or sometimes even a train before the truck, before it finally ends up in your warehouse. And then your warehouse right. is organized and set up in a way where it's like, cool, the order came in and we're going to get it to you in three to five days <laughs> with no problems. Like there's yeah. so many things that as a consumer and, and as a marketer, I didn't ever think of that launching Park It has forced me to really think about. And it's given me a lot of respect um, and a lot of, you know, just just consciousness to what other companies deal with. Like I definitely don't ever send the, the customer service email being like, what's going on with this? Where's my product? I, yeah. Yeah. Because now I totally understand the whole <laughs> process and I'm like, wow, 20, 20 year old me was such a pain in the ass. And like, you know, 30 year old me now is like, I totally understand the process. You guys do your thing. As long as I, I get my product, as long as I get my product, we're good. And right. if I paid for express shipping, then hurry up. But if I didn't do that, then we're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, in a world where everything is so instantaneous, right? I mean, Amazon, mm-hmm. for instance, it's, it, you get things in two days and that's the expectation now. So if you're not upholding that standard, even from a small e-commerce brand, you know, a lot of people don't realize that this is just someone pick packing and shipping hats out of their living room. You know, oh, it's, yeah. not, it's not Amazon. <laughs> that, that actually leads me to one of my favorite stories is the, uh, the story of uh, Vineyard Vines. And yeah. there's probably mm-hmm. elements of this story that I'll get wrong. Um, but I saw it on, on the news or on TV on one of those like, like Shark Tank type of mm-hmm. episode things that they have up there now. And um, basically the guys who founded Vineyard Vines had no production capabilities or whatever, but they had a couple samples and they like walked into Macy's or Nordstrom or something along those lines, like a big department store. Mm-hmm. And we're like, this is what we want to do for ties. We want to put whales and boats and like other graphics all over them and these crazy patterns. And they're like, perfect. We'll take like a thousand of them. And they're like, uh, what? Okay. <laughs> 
And like, they literally, they literally went home, called their bosses, basically quit their jobs, called their best friends and said, we need help. (laughs) We have to produce a thousand of these in the next like two weeks. Yeah. Uh, How do we do it? And they did it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you know, it's like, it's just things like that, that you don't really think about when you're, when you're, when you're on the consumer end of it, there's a lot of things that go into it. And when you're thinking about Amazon too, like the Amazon mindset that's been created is I think it's awesome what Amazon's done in terms of like the way that the customer is treated and the way that Mm -hmm. the customers get their products so quickly and they're so valued. Um, But it definitely puts like small companies in a little bit of a trickier spot. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you have Amazon Prime and we we Mm -hmm. don't sell on Amazon. Um, Like Park, it's not available on Amazon right now. We may be in the future. Will it be in the, yeah, you think so in the future? Yeah, it depends on on how we expand and grow. There's a couple things that are really, in my opinion, beneficial to being a direct consumer business where you own Mm -hmm. all of that on your own website and and you manage those relationships before you start to spread those things out. I mean, you eventually you have to, you have to grow. We'll get into that later. But um, like to your point about how Amazon's kind of changed the consumer, like sometimes you go on Amazon and like if you have an Amazon Prime account, um, you're expecting two-day shipping. And mm-hmm. the thing about the two-day shipping is that two-day shipping is only available for products that Amazon fulfills. Right. So for like, for example, like this pen, I ordered a package of pens, 50 of them from Amazon. It got to me in two days. Mm-hmm. Amazon, and these are sitting in an Amazon warehouse somewhere. Our chairs, they sit. They would sit in our warehouse. The order right. would come through Amazon, and fulfilled we would have to fulfill it. Exactly yeah. fulfilled by merchant. And there's a split where like the consumer doesn't necessarily always understand the difference. Mm-hmm. And like on the brand side, and I've experienced this with some of my some of the clients I used to work with. Like they're getting hit with customer service emails. Like why hasn't my thing shipped? I'm a Prime member. And it's like well. Yes, we understand that we're not a prime product. We're right. fulfilled by merchant. It went out the door today. It's going to get to you in the next three to five days. And like, it just is a little bit of a confusion point for, mm-hmm. for sometimes, but it's ultimately at the end of the day, like it's definitely a standard that they've set that a lot of us, 3PLs included, brands included who own their own uh, distribution, like we're trying to achieve that same type of, of speed and accuracy and customer service. Um, right. And so it's it's a good goal. It's a good bar that they've set because it's driving everybody to be better. Oh, for sure. You know, with competition, everyone's going to get better in the long run. Um, I actually had a Amazon store for a long time throughout college as a way to kind of get some beer money on the weekends. And um, <clears throat> so I learned the ins and outs of fulfilled by merchant, fulfilled by, you know, fulfilled by FBA fulfilled by Amazon. And it's interesting to hear, like, you know, a lot of people didn't understand exactly what I was doing. Um, because they just assumed Amazon was the one putting products up there and fulfilling them. And that was it. Like it was its own e-commerce store. There was a a total disconnect by the fact that there was actually people putting products on Amazon and then selling them for themselves. You know, like mm-hmm. my buddy who has the coffee company, that's his number one sales channel is Amazon. But he developed his company in a way that that, that fits. You know, he's mm-hmm. not someone that goes direct to consumer. He's going right to Amazon. And he's even said it, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses. One of the, one of the minuses is Amazon has the ability to turn you off at any time, you know, they want, right. Whereas direct to consumer, you kind of have a little bit more control over your own destiny, but then at the same time, you also have a captive audience, right. Being Mm -hmm. on Amazon, it's right. It's right there. It's one click away. It ships in two days. So, you know, it's, it's a toss up. It's definitely crazy what they've been able to do, but 
yeah, it's it, it's what makes the world turn. So yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned you know earlier on and through our future era earlier conversation, you started out. I mean, you're living in California now. Is that where you've always been? And then also, you know, park it. Like, what is park it? Because you've you've had a very interesting career, in many ways, super entrepreneurial. You know, and kind of always filling those shoes. So I guess taking a step back has entrepreneurship and doing your thing and being a professional you as you know joe rogan would say what is that um what did that look like in the earlier years for you yeah no great question um so the story of of really steven um and the professional the the professional steven um what you would find on linkedin i guess if you could say Mm -hmm. (laughs) is um no, I was born in California um, in a town called Marietta, which is about an hour north of San Diego, a little bit inland of the coast. Um, our next door neighbor is Temecula, which has become famous over the last 10 to 15 years for its wineries. Mm. Um, just trying to help triangulate anybody who's trying to figure out where the heck in the world is Marietta. Uh, a lot of times I get confused with Marietta, Georgia, not the same, uh, complete opposite <laughs> side of the country. Different uh, but but grew up in grew up in Marietta and um, kind of just spent my whole life playing sports and running around like you know the classic kind of like 1990s like childhood where like we had the skateboards and the bicycles mm. and and uh, there were hills and whatnot near our house that we would go and ride our bikes to and build dirt jumps and do all those things classic play, you know all that all the stuff that kind of comes with being a 90s kid and um, as soon as Basically, I turned 16 or I I guess back up a little further than that. One of our friends had turned 16 and he was a surfer. Um, He started driving from Marietta to Oceanside, um, which is where Park is based. And that's where we live now. Um, Mm -hmm. But he would drive to Oceanside and that really spurred off this whole like surfing kind of love and passion and, and lifestyle for me. Um, just, it just seemed like the, the, the best thing to do. Like Marietta was like 105 in the summer and a little, like hot and but close enough to the coast that it was a little bit muggy, not like East coast muggy, but it was hot mm-hmm. and muggy. And then you'd go to Oceanside and be like 75 degrees, sunny, you're surfing. Like it's the beach culture you got thing. The water. What's wrong? With yeah. That? And I just, I just like fell in love with it. And, um, at the same time, like I was super inspired by all the surf brands of the age of the day, like like the Quicksilvers and the Billabongs, Rusties, um, all those surf brands that were just promoting this really awesome lifestyle tied to these very like cultural values, of, like mm-hmm. go experience the world, discover these different cultures. Like, and on top of that, like when you go to all these places and you like learn the food and you learn the language, you learn about the people, um, you get to ride these absolutely insane, like perfect waves. And I just like felt so felt like so gravitated towards that, that basically all the other sports I was playing, like baseball done, um, water polo and swimming <laughs> was like, hey, water polo and swimming, super fun uh, and added benefit. It's really great for my paddling strength. Right. And I just like started moving my life towards this like surf culture mm-hmm. and um, went off to college and like my dad was uh, in the air force. My mom was a teacher. So didn't really have like the business acumen in my background to be like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go into business. Um, but my uncle was an entrepreneur and my grandfather was also an entrepreneur. Hmm. Um, and the two what of did them, they do? Uh, my grandfather helped his father um, on wall street. Um, basically my great grandfather um, in some capacity, I don't know the, the complete story, but in some capacity, like started some form of financial firm, uh, whether mm-hmm. it was financial advisory, um, but started something in that realm. And my grandfather helped him start that when he was young. 
And then my uncle is uh, actually a label printer. So he prints oh, the labels for like beer bottles, salsa bottles, um, you name it. If it's a label and it's printed on the West Coast of the United States, like I guarantee you at one point or another, his business has been the label company that helped hmm. produce the labels for their products. And so the two of them, I kind of like saw like what they were doing with their lives. And I was looking mm -hmm. at, at my parents and it was like, all right, like there's a, probably a lot of good things here. Like my mom's a teacher that's made me a lifelong learner. My dad is in the air force. That's brought me like discipline, structure, process. Mm -hmm. And then the, the two of them brought me a lot of like creative ingenuity. Like how can you solve problems for the world and align that with your business? And so it just right. kind of like became like the perfect storm uh, for me to start thinking about like entrepreneurship. And so when I went to school, I actually studied business and I had an emphasis in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And that exposed me to like venture capital firms and all these different crazy things that like at the time I was like, I don't know what this is at all. Like I've never right. been exposed to this. And I'm sitting next to kids in class whose parents are like run their own businesses who know all about this stuff. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. how do you guys know what the heck an angel investor is? Right. But that was like the first eye opening thing to like, wow, there's like a huge path for entrepreneurs to really go out there and, and like build their own business and find investors like there's a system that exists in this it's not like phil knight just one day was like i'm gonna build shoes right. i mean he kind of did if you've read shoe dog he kind of did great just, book by just the way feel like i'm gonna go build shoes but like there's a bunch of tools out there that if you if you know where to knock and you know where to look you're gonna figure out like the people who can help guide you along in building your business and i right. think that had a huge opportunity um in what would have become park it very early on. Like mm -hmm. that's, we're talking eight, nine years ago is when I was experiencing all of this. And then yeah. after I graduated from school, um, that surfing passion really came into play. And I was able to join the marketing team at Oakley um, where I was responsible for the action sports side of their, of their business um, with, a, with a handful of other people. After Sounds like Oakley, a badass job. <laughs> oh, it was super fun. And this was before Facebook marketing was really a thing and you could track yep. everything. It was like, Hey guys, here's X amount of dollars for marketing at Oakley. Um, make this sell a ton of sunglasses. And so we just thought of like some of the most ridiculous ways to try and sell sunglasses and snow goggles. What was what was what were some of those strategies to, that you had to put in place? Um, so one of them, we actually rolled out a goggle called uh, called Prism, a, a goggle technology called Prism, which was basically an enhanced contrast in low light. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're skiing in a snowstorm, you're supposed to be able to see better. And um, one of the things that we ended up doing was we built these giant TVs that were shaped like goggles. Hmm. So like think think a TV literally the size of the wall behind me. I don't know if the viewers um, listening to this podcast are going to get a video recording. Yeah, out of this, they'll but... see it. Yep. Okay, perfect. So basically from like the guitar on the wall to the door frame, um, that's a pretty large gap there. That, that picture behind mm -hmm. me is four, is four feet wide. So we would fill that entire gap with a rounded out TV screen in the shape of a goggle. And then that <laughs> goggle was split in half with like what the other guys see and then what you see with Prism. Okay. And um, we put those in windows of ski shops and snow shops and like retail shops all around the country. And that was like one of the wildest ideas that we got to execute, which like, yeah, let's just make a giant goggle. How are we going to do it? I don't know, but we'll figure it out. And we just we'll built giant out. goggles and <laughs> it was super fun. Uh, but that was like, you know, that was, that's, that, that was some of the stuff that led into like brand building. And mm -hmm. uh, like when you're with what I had learned in school, it was like, cool, these are the operational functions and the legal functions and the financial functions that go into to running a business. They don't really teach you a lot about brand. Mm -hmm. And Oakley um, specifically was really, really keen on like 
when you get hired, these are our values. These are, this is our history. You were right. hired because we believe that you align with our values and you know our history like you are the brand. You're an extension mm -hmm. of the brand. And they focus so heavily on brand. And I remember like emailing somebody at Red Bull about a thing and I like, I said the business to them and they were like, first off, um, always refer to Red Bull as the brand. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, like this, this, this theme <laughs> of brand, yeah. yeah, this theme of brand just like kept getting thrown at me and thrown at me and thrown at me. And then I started to realize like, that's what's kept me. That's what made me become like that surfer when I was like 16 years old was right. all the brand like messaging and the, the core values of these companies. And so, you know, learned all that through the Oakley experience. Um, went off to Quicksilver. And the story of Quicksilver is pretty funny. I got hired um, after about half of the marketing team just up and like kind of threw their hands in the air. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine who worked there and said, hey, uh, we need someone to jump in over here. And it's a great opportunity. And I think you'd be a great fit for it. And this mm -hmm. was kind of my like, oh, wow, I don't have to do the action sports side. I get to kick out the skateboarding, kick out the wakeboarding, right. which has never been me, and be only surfing. And so I was like, yeah, let's do this. Jumped over to Quicksilver. Three days into being onboarded at Quicksilver, the company filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. <laughs> nice. And um, <laughs> I, I flew up to Seattle to visit my mom. That's where she lives now. And it was her birthday. And I said, yeah, I got the job at Quicksilver. It's, so far, things seem good. We filed bankruptcy, but I got, I got paid on Friday. So I think that's a good sign. Well. <laughs> and uh, I learned that there's two types of bankruptcy. There's Chapter 11, which is a restructure. And there's Chapter 7, which is basically we're closing our doors for good. We'll see you later. That's kind of what Sports Chalet had to do. And right. uh, I learned basically between at that moment, I recognized, whoa, at Oakley, you were in a machine that had all of the all, everything firing at all cylinders. This is mm -hmm. the processes that they had in place. This is the importance of all these processes. And Quicksilver on the other side, they at one point had those processes because they were just flying. They were a publicly traded company. They were worth north of a billion dollars for a clothing brand and action sports wow. space, which is. You know, I didn't realize pretty that. much unheard of and uh, something had gone wrong and you know, there's decisions along the way and there, there's articles and research people can do to kind of like identify which one it is. But ultimately um, I learned like, this is what happens when things aren't managed appropriately. And when, when there's a little bit of a, a misalignment and mm -hmm. like it, it was almost c catastrophic for the entire business. And um, the best part about kind of my timing with that was one, I got to see, like, oh, this is why what Oakley has done is so valuable. Mm -hmm. But I also got to see this is how we're going to restructure it. And this is how we're going to fix it. And was a part of, I uh, spent about a year with Quicksilver, part of the restructure and, and fixing their brand image and fixing their business and their processes. Yeah, And that was and, kind and, of the light bulb moment. And what Go was ahead. it that you thought, I mean, you know, having seen both where Oakley is very brand centric and Quicksilver is kind of, lost their way in a lot of ways it sounds like and even today you know you see that a lot of companies they start with a really solid brand and they start with a lot of authenticity as to who they are and then all of a sudden they kind of start to focus more on the sale and less of the story so mm -hmm. in what way do you think quicksilver kind of lost their way quicksilver didn't lose their way in terms of the brand and the story where mm. they lost their way was in some of the operational functions of the business. Some more logistical stuff. That yeah, there was there was some the uh, there were some like like cash flow things. There were some mm -hmm. operational things. There were some distribution things. 
Right. Um, cause the brand has always been strong. That, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that, you know, being a brand guy, Quicksilver's brand has always been like one of the most dominating For in sure. the action sports space. It's globally recognized. You see that mountain in that wave and you immediately mm-hmm. think of like Kelly Slater. I think you got to give a lot of credit to their, their surf team manager who brought in guys like Kelly Slater to, to really like lead the charge when he mm-hmm. was winning. God, what he win? 11 world titles. I think maybe 12. I forget off the top of my head. It's so many. Whatever he's done, he's pretty well known, so he's doing a good job. Exactly, but like, what 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 happened was like between the two of them, kind of my in my comparing and contrasting like those two experiences, just Mm. hanging out with some friends. I had like the the light bulb moment where I realized, wow, wait a minute, you know the finance side because of schooling, you know Mm -hmm. the paths and things you can do also because of schooling. You've learned the value of process and procedure and, you know, how to fire on all cylinders through Oakley. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've learned a lot of the mistakes that a brand like Quicksilver went through it made. And now you're learning how to reassert and restructure and and basically like replatform that business into, you know, the the strong company that it's always been. And that was kind of the moment for me where I was like, you're kind of becoming like a like a bit of a 360 you you've got a little bit of like uh, not expertise but you have experience in a lot of different fields now and mm-hmm. seeing a lot of different things like what's that next step going to be and like as i'm having this conversation in my head my uncle's like showing up every month for something for his own work and we're grabbing dinner and he's just like mm-hmm. poking me with like entrepreneurship 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 right, when are you right. going to do it and I'm like, oh, you know, it's really risky. Schools are always like nine out of 10 entrepreneurs fail. And like, like it's true. There's a huge failure rate. Um, mm-hmm. But like there was just something that just made me kind of feel like, yeah, the way that I want to grow personally um, and the way that I want to like succeed professionally isn't going to happen if I'm waiting for an organization to tell me, congratulations, you've earned your promotion. Um, that was something right. that just never sat well with me. Like if, if you played sports mm-hmm. and you were the best quarterback, you worked your ass off to be the starting quarterback and the coach right. recognized it and you got mm-hmm. to be the starter. And, uh, in work, you can be the guy that does exactly all of those things. And it, it, a lot of it depends on company culture. So I want to point that out. Some companies are really good at it. Some sure. companies are really bad at it, but there's a lot of people who go into these companies are super motivated, master their, their craft really fast and they get burnt out because they're mm-hmm. bored. And I would get bored in a lot of these, these roles that were like very task oriented in the very beginning. And then they give me something that was the next like thing to bite off. But there was no, there was no incentive though. It was like, Oh, you right. have more bandwidth. So we're going to give you more, but mm-hmm. there was no like compensation on the other end. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And then, Right. I remember having a conversation with my uncle about this and he goes, well, if you did that as a contractor, you would bill hourly. And then every time that something new came in, you would be able to adjust the contract. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. So I started side hustling and I started basically taking what I knew in, in terms of brand building and, and marketing management. And I started reaching out to small brands that I knew needed help. Mm-hmm. And I think this actually was like the icing on the cake in terms of what led to the creation of Park it was those conversations and those clients let me see the inner workings of a business that was run by three to five people who had nobody in marketing, but the guy was right. a finance genius and his partner was a product engineer. Like mm-hmm. there were so many businesses that I got to see basically like under the hood 
I got to basically walk. I got to basically walk the Daytona 500 and look under the hood of every car and go, "Wow, right. like this process works. This one doesn't. We got to fix these things." And I got to see mm. see it so rapidly because now I was contracting and I was meeting with a new brand every week at a coffee shop, learning about what they needed, what they wanted help with. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the deal would sign, sometimes the deal wouldn't sign, but I got to see all of that. And right. everything that I learned through all those processes, I took every best practice that I could and was like, how do we roadmap this into your own business? And mm -hmm. the, the bigger challenge was like, how do we roadmap this into a business that fits with what you want it to be? And I didn't want to start another clothing brand. Now, now I'm kind right. of getting into like how the idea for Park It came around. Mm -hmm. And I was now, like, let me ask you this to... though, because, you know, it was interesting to see that you kind of went around and you're asking all these questions and you're getting involved in these smaller companies and being that puzzle piece, if you will, that kind of fits in where they needed to be. Right. But, um, what I really find interesting is that, you know, to kind of take a step back and, and learn a little bit about your uncle and how he was just poking you and, and prodding you. What do you think it was growing up and seeing that and, the lifestyle that goes with it and seeing him and your grandfather that kind of led you to this, right? Because in a lot of ways I can relate, you know, I didn't have, my dad had a, had a small business growing up and it was at that moment that I kind of realized, okay, this is the direction I want to go, you know, and friends and family that had all been in entrepreneurship were, were a huge influence, you know, and starting this podcast, getting to, you know, like you see under the hood a little bit, get to ask these questions to people and give them a platform. So, in what ways do you think that this culmination of your career, you going and doing side hustles, and then kind of the the underlying mindset that you had gotten from your family started this? Yeah, I think I think he played a huge role. My uncle did in terms of the entrepreneurship bug that got created, and a lot of it had to do with, I think, like him sharing like what he was doing at mm -hmm. my age. And so he was like, yeah, when I was your age, I was driving to, you know, X amount of label shops, getting these things, getting these contracts. And like, did you know that if I, I remember one of the things he said to me, it was like, did you know that if I sold a thousand labels for my old company, when I worked, when I worked for them, I'd make 10% on that sale. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, yeah, do you know what a label cost? I'm like, no, he's like three cents. I'm <laughs> like, oh, so you make 10% of three cents. He's like, yeah. I'm like, that sucks. And he's like, yeah. but do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when you own the business? And I was like, no, no. What happens when you own the business? And he goes, well, you own the entire margin. You don't have to pay that margin to a sales rep because you sold it and you manage mm -hmm. it and you do it. And I was like, so what's your, what's your mark? What's your markup then on that three cent label? And he's like something like 50, like 50% 50 or 60%. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself the numbers and I was like, all right. So we started running some numbers and it's like, all right. So you said sell 10,000 labels. What was your commission? And he's like, oh, it was like 300 bucks. Let's say you sell 10,000 labels and you run the business. What's your commission? And he's like three grand. And I'm like, whoa, holy crap. Like that was like the Big light difference. bulb moment for me yeah. where like it, not, not so much like the, the financial part of it, like that's a big part of it. But mm -hmm. at the same time, like that was the moment for me where I was like, that's, that's, that's the key. Like that's right. the key to entrepreneurship. That's the key to pursuing your mission. That's how you enable other people to join your mission and you get that mission to grow and they get to be a part of, of the success of what everyone's creating is like that being able to like you get that margin and you decide where it's going to go, how it's going to be spent, mm -hmm. how it's going to be utilized to either impact the customer, impact your, your employees, impact your, your, your network of, of mm -hmm. contractors, depending on how you set it up. Like that was like the moment for me where I recognized like, wow, that's crazy. 
how to use money that you generate as revenue as a tool to grow versus a thing that sits in your bank account that you spend at the bars on Friday and Saturday and buy a new Mm -hmm. surfboard with when you, when you go on a trip, you know, like that was like the big mind shift for me financially that I think my uncle put through, through those entrepreneurship conversations where I realized like, it's just a matter of me deciding that I believed in myself enough that I could do it Mm -hmm. instead of like looking under the hood of all these cars and, you know, you can look under the hood of a thousand race cars, but unless you've gotten in the driver's seat of it, you really don't know how fast it's going to go. But you can right. look at the best practices and go, cool, this is set up this way. This is set up that way. And this is the way that I think it should be set up. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that race car driver is going to ultimately know the feeling of what it's like to cross that finish line first or go like whipping around that turn. And, and for context, I've been watching that Formula One documentary yeah. on netflix i've seen so that yeah <laughs> yeah i've been so my, my analogies are all car based oh, i car apologize based <laughs> that's all right um but that type of that type of thing is i think what ultimately led me to the being like all right it's time to take that jump um let's build your own business mm-hmm. and when it came around to actually building park it specifically it was about all right what kind of product can we build that aligns with your passions which was surfing snowboarding camping outdoor mm-hmm. exploration getting friends around a campfire um doing all those things that we love to do and like one of the things in my head was like do not build a clothing brand do not build a clothing brand don't build a clothing brand like it's we, like we the default another... nowadays yeah exactly and it's like it's like it's fun um if you could build a giant clothing brand and that's what you want to do and you're a fashion person go do it. You're going to have a creative edge over somebody else. But for mm-hmm. me, it was like, I'm just going to slap, I'm just going to slap logos on t-shirts. No, that's not what I wanted to do. And, um, we were sitting around a campfire actually in San Onofre a few years back. And one of my buddies sits down in his chair. And as he goes to sit down, the entire bottom ripped out and he had to spend the rest of the weekend sitting on the floor <laughs> with his backrest, basically up against a tree that was nearby. So he didn't have like the bark going into his back. Mm-hmm. And that was my moment where I went, oh my God, this is it. Like, this is the product. This is what we're going to build. And I, I called one of my buddies and I was like, hey, what do you think of this idea? And I was like, I want to take the old retro style beach chair, camping chair, you know, that from the 50s and 60s, but I want to put really cool patterns on it and build it to be industrial and build it with mm-hmm. functional functional features that are just missing from like what we need today. And he was like, I kind of like it, like send me like a rendering of what you're thinking. And so I took like an old lawn chair and at this point, my graphic design skills were pretty poor. They've gotten a lot mm-hmm. better. Um, entrepreneurship forces you to, to learn skills because you can't pay <laughs> you to outsource do everything. Yep. You got to do it all. And uh, I like took a couple of things from like Adobe, uh, Adobe stock and like layered them on top of a chair and sent it to him. And he was like, yeah, actually, I would definitely buy one of these. And I was like, mm-hmm. all right, cool. That's all I needed to hear. I'm going to send this to a few other people. And so I started talking to friends and family about it. And, you know, they're always like, really a chair. And, um, I was like, but, but the thing that I could see in my mind so clearly was the brand, like Mm. the product was, was going to be secondary. It was more about the mission that we were on and the brand and that our mission is ultimately to enjoy the exploration, spend quality time outdoors with the people we love the most friends, family, Mm -hmm. And do the activities and share the stories that make us who we are. You know, how many right. times have you sat around a campfire with your uncle and he's got some, it's you know, best. he's got some fishing tale about this 300 pound tuna he hooked. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, his wife's over there shaking her head, just like, oh, not this story again. It was right. 110 pound tuna. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, we're gonna, <laughs> like, you know, you're like, but it's like, it's those moments where we get to learn about like 
who yeah. each other are and and it builds that community and and that's what i always wanted the park it brand to be about and mm -hmm. our first slogan was actually like where do you park it which was the idea of like the locations and places you would go to mm -hmm. and then enjoy the exploration uh, came to me like flying on an airplane one day and, and they were like enjoy the flight and i was like enjoy the flight well i'm going like i'm kind of exploring what if i was in and i also <laughs> light bulb with like that's our yeah, mission yeah. enjoy the exploration right and, in the book and that yeah, and and that became that became more about like ex exploration, meaning like your life, like enjoy mm -hmm. the exploration of your life, and and park it is a tool, and our chair, the Voyager, is a tool that you can use to basically facilitate that mission, where you get to share mm -hmm. your story, you get to learn from other people's story, and through that, like, our networks grow. And at the end of the day, like if there's anything that I think the world could use more of right now, especially in 2021 after the mm -hmm. year of 2020 and what we all experienced is a little bit more handshaking and a little bit more, tell me your story. Let's sit around the fire. Let's crack open a couple beers and sure. learn about one another and find out how we can all serve each other better. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of like the main mission of our business is to, to get people outside doing those things that they love to do and, and engaging in those relationships and we hope that, you know, they'll do that with our product because, you know, that's where, you know, like I mentioned, the, the empowerment of the business comes from the financial capital that you're able to, to, to create. Right. The, the sales of our shares empower us to continue leading that mission and mm -hmm. continue, you know, exposing our brand to more people. It's going to allow us to have events in the future and all that type of stuff. But, but I really, when I think back to like the story that I've been sharing here is like, it really came down to like, what are the values that the business is going to stand by, which Park mm -hmm. It in itself is an acronym. It stands for presence, adventure, responsibility, kindness, independence, and tenacity. And, you know, like that plays into everything that we do. It plays into everything that we post on social media. It plays into our blog post. And like at the end of the day, like that's what we want people to remember is the experience that they have with our brand and our products and who mm -hmm. we are um, and want to be a part of that versus just feeling like they're just buying a product from us online and right. throw it it's out. A, it's about whatever, the people. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's entirely about the people. And, and I think that's what's played a big role in, the, in our first year of business and the success that we saw. So, Yeah. And now what do you mean? We brought this up kind of earlier as well, but it seems as though prior to, let's use 2020 as a, as a landmark, if you will. You know, we, we saw so many other, so many brands kind of get to this pinnacle where it seems as though they kind of stepped away from their authenticity and their true self, right? A lot of mm -hmm. people tended to focus more on, as I said earlier, the sale and less about the story. You know, we've seen companies rise and fall. Some started out with, you know, being truly, truly authentic to themselves, but then all of a sudden, you know, took a left turn, got involved in a venture capitalist or whatnot, and then they totally lose their authenticity. So, you know, you seem like a very authentic guy and park. It seems like a very authentic brand just because you've grown up doing it. You know, you are the brand, right. And in many ways. So that combination of, of brand and business, but then also this passion side of things, how has your life actually played a role into creating it? Like you could have created anything you created, you could have created this, you know, a fishing rod or a surfboard or what have you, but you chose a chair, you know, you chose that moment where you sit around the campfire and I got, I'm, I'm willing to believe there's more to that story in terms of why, right? Because it seems to me like telling stories is your thing. You know, you, you started out mm -hmm. with branding, you're a marketer, you're a storyteller, 
So to create a brand that is all around the person and the story, that's something special. And not a lot of people are willing to do that and take that extra step because I'll tell you, having tried it, it's a, it's a, in trying it, there's a lot more legwork and it's a lot more long-term than creating a t-shirt and and throwing logos on it and being able to sell mm-hmm. a bunch right off the bat. Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. And, and I appreciate all that. Um, I think, I think the, the, the ultimate why actually stems from a thought that I had in college. And the thought that I had in college was I was just like so obsessed with surfing. I had studied abroad in Australia and like crossed all these waves off my, my surfing bucket list. And um, I had a conversation with a guy at Lennox Head and I was just sitting there watching the waves go by, like filling out my study abroad journal. And he comes up to me and he starts asking me about like surfing and whatnot. And he notices real quick that I don't have an Australian accent. And he's like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, I'm from California. And we start like really getting into like, you know, like start talking about like the global things around the world. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is a very interesting conversation to be having with this like 50 year old man randomly in Lennox Head, Australia. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked me, he was like, well, if there was like one thing you think you could do to make the world a better place, what would you do? And I was like, honestly, I think that just more people should surf. Like the the happiness it brings me, the the meditation it would bring me, mm-hmm. um, the feeling, like the way that it would just set my day. If I surfed before school or surfed before work, the pace that it sets for my day is so positive mm-hmm. versus a day where maybe I don't. And I remember thinking to myself, it'd be really cool if just more people understood that feeling. And uh, if we could get more people to surf, I think the world would be a little bit more of a better place. And the irony of that is in 2020, everyone started working from home and a lot more people started surfing and <laughs> our beaches got a lot more crowded. And ironically, more people surfing meant more angry surfers because it was so right. crowded. <laughs> so I don't yeah. know if my theory back in college was correct, but like, you know, you asked that question, like what was the deeper why? And I think the deeper why was always knowing that like we as humans have the ability to basically build things that are greater than ourselves. You know, like, mm-hmm. like when you think about like, uh, I'm just going to use the country as an example, like the founding fathers of this country knew they were building something greater than themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see that in like the values and whatnot were instilled in some of the founding documents. And I don't want to get too political. No, political yeah, I understand what you're saying. But I'm using yeah. it as the, the analogy. Right. And, and as a bit, as a, as a person, you can choose to either make that you, um, or you can choose to make that a business or you can make mm-hmm. it a, a charity or you can make it um, an organization that that supports you know you can you can choose to make that whatever it is but the goal in my opinion should always be to make something that's bigger than yourself that serves a greater purpose mm-hmm. and you know like i think there's there's uh, certain celebrities that we can think to who go okay they've done that for themselves and they've done that from a whole by some sort of foundation or some company. Right. Like there's a lot of people who've done that where they've made it more about their mission and not who they are as like a person. Mm-hmm. And I knew with Parkit we could do that. And I knew with Parkit and I knew with that thought process around like if everyone surfed the world would be a better place, what would be something that would be more relatable to more people at the same time? And everyone remembers the first time they go camping. Mm-hmm. Everyone either loves it <laughs> or they hate it. Yeah. Um, but then, but the first time that you actually are sitting around a fire and you look up and you're in the middle of nowhere and you see the Milky Way with your own eyes, like you look mm-hmm. up into the sky and you see that cloudiness with all the stars compacted together and you see mm-hmm. the Milky Way actually there. Um, that doesn't take any crazy skill like it does to surf a 10 foot wave or snowboard down a, pe- a mountain in Alaska out of a helicopter. 
that just takes the ability to say, I'm going to drive out into the desert tonight with some friends, bring some beer and some food, light a fire and hang out. And that mm -hmm. was the moment where I was like, this is a mission that can actually touch more people mm -hmm. and it's going to impact more people because it doesn't have that physical um, barrier that a lot of the other things that I had used to think of did. Right. And that's what led really to understanding that that campfire motive was, you know, sitting around that fire that night with friends of ours. There were guys who are basically like semi-professional snowboarders. Um, there were guys like me who like going down chairlift, like the runs off of chairlifts. Mm -hmm. And there were guys who had never snowboarded in their life, but we all got to be a part of it. And that was the part of it that I really liked was it was just very inclusive of everybody, regardless of your skill set in a certain activity. It was mm -hmm. more about just meeting and hanging out and sharing stories and having a good time and doing that. And that was where like the chair, you know, really fit in perfectly with that. How do we make the world a little bit of a happier, better place? And if people are hanging out, having a good time, then, you know, we're doing our job. Yeah. Well, I can, I can totally relate to that because in a lot of ways, what I've always kind of set out to do is, you know, I was, I was working in Hawaii out on the big Island and it was this realization of, you know what, man? Yeah, I'm, I'm captain of boats. Sure, I'm taking people out, but I'm actually what I'm doing is teaching people how to love the ocean. You know, people that mm -hmm. are from Arkansas, from South Dakota, where they don't have the opportunity. You know, and I got the opportunity as a kid growing up. You know, this that was my life. I got to summer here in Rhode Island, grew up here, and uh, had a little dinghy, and I got to go explore and pick up crabs and turn over rocks, and that was kind of my. That's how I lived, right? And not everyone got to do that, so. Whereas the outdoors in general, A, it's free for the most part, you know, you might need some gear to get there, but you could get out in the outdoors with the shorts and a t-shirt and a pair of sneakers, you know, but that mm -hmm. moment that you describe of being around a fire with friends and family and, and taking a moment for yourself to look up to the Milky Way is it's eye opening, you know, cause it, it kind of puts in perspective that there's a lot more out there. There's a lot more you can do. There's a lot more you can create. And you know, I think humans in general are, everyone's creative in their own right, you know, whether it's playing a video game, being a carpenter, being a boat builder, you don't have to build a physical thing. You could build a blog, mm -hmm. you could do whatever, right? So I find it really interesting. And I love the fact that you've kind of tied that into the brand and, you know, a chair, it, it seems kind of basic in, in the sense that, yeah, you put it around, you set it up, you sit in it, Right. But it's much, much more than that, you know, on a very deeper level. And I love how you've kind of brought that out, especially with a fire, because who loves, who doesn't love a campfire, right? Um, I mean, there's no bad time at a campfire. Uh, so as, as you kind of develop this brand and taking bits and pieces from all these other brands that you've worked with in your career at, you know, these outdoor companies, you, you kind of saw under the hood, right? You got to pick all these pieces up. and decide to make a chair. Now, what does that process look like? Because as we started this podcast, we got into the nuts and bolts of three PLs, which we probably could have saved until now, but you know, doesn't matter. Anyway, like how did you, how did you get to the point where you're like, all right, I got this idea. We're sitting around a campfire. I got the brand laid out. How am I, how the hell am I going to build a chair? Yeah, that's, that's, that was a process. Um, so like I mentioned in the beginning too, like I had no idea about product design development, the engineering work that needed to go into stuff. And uh, the way that I kind of started was I was just ordering chairs off of like Amazon and uh, other chair sites, just being like, all right, let's see how they do this. And I called up a buddy of mine who was an engineer and I was like, 
where would you do? He's like, well, uh, I picked your favorite one and we could just like re-engineer it. And I was like, uh, you can do that. And he's like, sort of, but like, at least in the beginning, like, let's just do it that way. And so mm-hmm. he tried to help me do a few things and like, it just wasn't ever really coming together. And I was driving around at the same time. Like I was driving around to like metal shops and woodworking shops and mm-hmm. like basically just spinning my wheels being like, walking in and be like, Hey, can you guys build this? Or like showing them a chair. <laughs> and they're like, dude, why do you want to build a chair? And I was like, uh, this doesn't, this is, you're not the right guy. Okay. Next, right. next, next. And like every single guy would be like, well, I can't do that. Maybe you should go talk to this guy or maybe you should talk to this guy. And like, before you know it, like I've even come and I've talked to you and you're like, I don't do this. I do podcasts. Like you mm-hmm. should talk to this guy. I, like everything was just like leading to another door. And I just like one day, uh, went on LinkedIn and I wrote on a post on LinkedIn and, and I was like, hey, I have an idea for a product, but I'm not exactly sure at all how to build it. And I don't want to disclose what it is because this is a public forum and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a super challenging. It's not like I'm coming up with like the algorithm for Facebook, you know, right. um, like it is a, it is at the end of the day, it is a, a chair. Um, we built a pretty badass one and there's a lot of complexities to the one that we built, but I didn't at all know what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, an old coworker of mine from Oakley reached out and commented on it and said, you need to meet Jason Klug. Um, he's the founder of a product design firm in Utah. They helped us build these things for our business. And um, I think they could help you. And so I took his advice and I reached out to Jason and um, shot him a message through the contact form being like, would love to talk to you guys. I have this idea. don't really know what to do. And I like jumped through their website and their, their company is called Klugonix, K-L-U-G-O-Y-N-X. Um, kind, of, hmm. kind of like a tr- tricky name there. But yeah. Awesome group of people. Their their motto on their website was bring us your napkin sketch and we'll bring it to life. And I was like, <laughs> love that. Perfect. <laughs> this These is exactly <laughs> what I need. Yeah. And yeah. Um, got on my first phone call with them. And I was like, oh, whoa, these are these are like the big leagues. Like these guys are real product designers. This is a real firm. Like they, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like that first phone call with Jason was like him also feeling like me feeling out whether or not I thought they could do it. And him feeling out whether or not I was serious enough to pursue it. Mm-hmm. And like at this stage, like I've gone through the the full-time jobs with these companies. I've gone through some of the contracting. I'm like really getting into like the beginning stage of contracting. The contracting accelerates through the whole product development process. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that. But I'm like trying to figure out like, okay, what are the capital needs going to be from this? And like, I've got my savings account and it's looking pretty good, but it's not great. Like I'm not buying a house anytime soon, but like. <laughs> It, it's 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 doable i've got months afloat and um the meeting goes great and he sends me the, the quote like three days later and the quote comes out and i'm like oh shit this is my whole savings account <laughs> and i'm like it's, it's it's almost like like someone was like we know exactly what he's got to produce this product let's do it no right um but like in my mind i'm like son of a bitch okay like this was this this took me a year and a half to accumulate um if you want to do this, we're going to have to make these investments. Uh, everybody says you got to invest in yourself. Let's look at this not as like the purchasing of a surfboard. That's the mm-hmm. money gone and you're going to have the surfboard. This is an investment into your future. Right. And that shift in mindset helped me make the decision a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately brought on Klugonix. And our first meeting um, was an ideation meeting where I basically spelled out like, this is what I wanted to do. This is what I want to look like. This is the functionality features that we think are going to be important. And the aesthetic to me was super important. I wanted it to be 
in line with those 1950s and 1960s lawn chairs mm -hmm. um, that are like world famous with the crisscross pattern. It's an awesome look. And, and um, their designer like hit, like just crushed it. He came back to me on our next meeting with a deck that was like, this is what you told, described to us. This is what that looks like. And now here's the ways that we think it can evolve and like become mm -hmm. even more than just like the initial idea. And, and the whole thing just basically like from that moment, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is real. This is going to be real. And um, that was, those conversations happened in October of 2018 for context. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, you know, two and a half years ago from the day that we're recording this podcast. And from there, it was like, okay, well, what do we do next? Well, we got to build a CAD model. And so the, their engineer gets in and he builds a CAD model of the design. And then it's all right, now what do we do? We got to build a prototype and we build the first prototype. Well, when you build the CAD model, gravity doesn't exist. Just mm -hmm. the floating rendering in space, <laughs> just floating around. You can yeah. grab the mouse, twist it, the chair spins. And the very first prototype, we set it up and like we set it down on the ground and we tried to do one of the fat, like the features and it just fell out. And we're like, oh shit, we didn't think about gravity. Like right. just funny things like that happen. Yeah. And we were like, all right, cool. So we got to tweak this. And then we refined and tested and refined and we did another prototype. And like this one was closer, but it wasn't perfect. Um, but we were definitely getting like towards where we wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. And this whole time, like while this is happening, like I don't, I'm not working for the business full time. I've invested my entire savings account into this product design like project. Mm -hmm. And we're trying, I'm contracting, like, I'm ramping up contracting. I, I normally I'm working with four to five clients on a monthly basis. I'm working with like nine to twelve right now. Mm. Um, I'm trying to get as much like money and cash flow in through these contracting services as I can. And at the same time, I'm exponentially learning. Like this is how this business is succeeding here. This is how this business is failing here. This is right. what can be done to fix how this business is failing to make them succeed like the other one. I'm learning all of this all at the same time. And I didn't like notice that it was happening then. It's like one of those things where if you think about the Steve Jobs quote we discussed yeah. today, it's like mm -hmm. you can connect the dots going backwards. Sure. Like I look at that and I'm like, that was the best thing to be doing with my time. It was super stressful because as a contractor, it's not guaranteed income. But I was learning and getting exposed to so much that I wouldn't be exposed to in a normal job. Mm -hmm. That it was all playing a factor into like how we structured the business, how we thought about supply chain. Um, how we thought about distribution, like those questions really started to become pronounced versus like, all right, we've got a product and we don't know what to do. Right. So I learned a ton of that at the same time. Um, the product, ultimately the one that became like the winning ticket, we got that prototype in January of 2020. So it took a full year and a half to get mm. to that prototype. And from there, it was like, okay, cool. We're going to launch our Kickstarter campaign this spring. Um, it's going to be great timing. People are going to be thinking about summer. We're going to put this chair in front of people. They're not going to get it for probably six to nine months. Cause that's just the nature of the beast with Kickstarter. Right. We're trying to raise money to, to fund that first purchase order. Um, uh, but we started going content crazy and our content, like to speak about, you know, brand, it was all around camping. It was all around adventure. It was all mm -hmm. around, you know, driving out in the middle of the desert and hanging around with friends with the fire cracking beers. And so we just started building everything around that. And then hyper-focusing on the features of our chair, what made us better, what were our differentiators. Mm -hmm. And um, we put that into a Kickstarter campaign that was set to launch on March 18th. And if we think back to March 18th of 2020, that's the same time. <laughs> day that everybody panicked and bought toilet paper. 
Yeah. And so my brother calls me on March 16th and he goes, what are you doing for St. Patrick's Day tomorrow? I'm like, you know, just getting ready for the Kickstarter campaign. And I'm like tunnel visioning, like every book I've read is like, you got to push through the hurdles. You got to break through the walls. Right. And, uh, and he's like, he's like, are you sure you still want to launch? And I'm like, yeah, you're like every book says I got to. And he goes, yeah, I, I think you might want to like rewrite the book on this one. Like this is a mm. pandemic. This is a thing. This isn't normal. You might want to like, like hit the brakes. Right. And I call, I call my uncle and I go, Hey, entrepreneur guy, mentor, what am I supposed to do? And he goes, I think I'd, I'd decide with your brother on this one. I called Jason, um, at Klugonix, um, who's become a basic, a really great business mentor of mine through the whole relationship in the last couple of years as mm -hmm. well. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you should probably definitely Let's hit pump the brakes, the brakes. <laughs> on this. And so I'm like, all right, we're three for three. Everyone's been saying hit the brakes. Uh, my gut is like leaning towards maybe I should, you know, recognize the context of what's happening in the world, sure. not just the tunnel vision of these books. And um, we decided to hit the brakes, which actually turned out, I think, to be the best decision we could have ever made. And in yeah. the moment, it was like, oh, God, like we pumped the brakes in the Kickstarter campaign. I start to panic thinking that like I've invested all this money into a company that's never going to work. Like this mm -hmm. is just my internal thought process. Right. And, um, that weekend we're, we're out, the bars haven't been closed yet. We're at a bar here locally in Oceanside and there's this epic cover band playing. And I get the notification in my pocket that says that Mammoth Mountain is closed. And I'm like, Oh man, we were planning on just like driving there. Cause all the work from home stuff had initiated. Mm. And we were like, well, like we don't have to be in offices. Meetings can't be held. We can work from wherever the mountains are open. Let's go snowboarding. And suddenly that was gone. And then the whole uh, message from Icon Pass came out and they were like, we're shutting down all operations at all mountains across North America. And I was like, the outdoor industry is done. Like right. that was like the way I felt. And I was like, I had just planned to roll out this outdoor business on Kickstarter. And we'd invested all this money in the product design and development. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like gone overnight. And for about three weeks, it felt that way. And then right about like the third or fourth week, somewhere along there, I started recognizing that our beaches in Oceanside were packed yeah. and like they had Big said, time. like beaches are closed. Like no one can go to the beaches and we had people <laughs> just driving in like Monday to Monday, like weekdays because people didn't have to be in an office, right? Just walking around the beach, doing their thing outside. And I was like, people want to be outside. People don't have anything else to do. Mm -hmm. We got to launch. And so we immediately like cranked up the, cranked up the volume started pummeling money in the ad spend for our pre-campaign launch. And uh, we ended up launching on Kickstarter on May 6th. And we had an absolutely like incredible Kickstarter campaign, far surpassed any of our expectations. We were like, maybe we'll raise 100 to 150K. That'll be awesome. That'll help us mm -hmm. with our first purchase order. And we ended up raising just under $500,000 in 30 wow, days. Wow, holy crap. And um, I'll, I'll never forget like going uh, and um, like, I, I, I didn't even think it was going to be that big. So I had everything mm -hmm. still for the business, like set up under my own, like personal checking account. This is like how naive I was to like what we were <laughs> doing and from sure. a financial perspective is that like the Kickstarter campaign completed. We we're like blown away. This is incredible. We got to get started now on like building the supply chain, working with the factories, getting the product actually built, shipped, you know, all those pieces that come with sure. it now. And I go into like the Wells Fargo um, down the street from my house and I get a cashier's check to go deposit with our new bank that I'm opening up for the mm -hmm. business. And um, I walk up to the woman and I like 
felt so uncomfortable saying the number <laughs> because every first off you're wearing a mask because right. it's COVID. Yep. <laughs> and you walk up and there's a line of people behind me and I'm about to tell her I need her to write a cashier's check for just south of five hundred thousand dollars because I have to deposit this into the bank <laughs> for the business. Yeah. And I just like, can you please pull a check for it? And I just like held up the calculator number like on the thing and she looked at me like all cockeyed. <laughs> and I like, was like before. and I'm like here's my card she swipes the card the balance pulls up and she's like what do you do and i was like i ran a kickstarter campaign for an outdoor chair we call the voyager i run a business called park it and it went really really well and uh i didn't think that we were gonna have to do this but we need to we deposit this cash <laughs> we need to transfer this cash to our business banking account because i didn't set it up that way mm -hmm. and can you please pull the check and she was just like so blown away um and I was too. And I remember right. like holding the check and taking a photo of it being like, this is insane. It's now my responsibility to use this mm -hmm. and produce all the chairs that have just been ordered right? and produce access. And like, I've never done that in my entire life. I have no idea like yeah. where to start. And uh, thankfully, Klugonics has a partner company called Onx360. Uh, which acts as a sourcing agent for uh, manufacturing partners in China. Sure. And so Jason connects me with Nate, who leads that arm of the of the business. And Nate and I start going back and forth of like, okay, this is what we got to do. This is how this all needs to work. And like Nate and his team were incredible. They got us lined up with basically our entire supply chain um, to the point now where we can basically place an order. And within like 60 to 90 days, we've got, we've got new units showing up. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was just so mind blowing to be like oh my god this is going to be a real business this is yeah. this is like that was the moment i think for me the kickstarter campaign where it like really became real people ask like mm -hmm. when did it become real and i'm like the prototype was kind of a step but the moment that we saw people gravitating towards our mission and like our kickstarter campaign yeah it touched on like, the features of our chair but we were still mm -hmm. very brand focused it was like this is what we're here to do and what we believe in and right. I think that had a huge impact on why our campaign did way better than we thought it would. Yeah. And even but since you're then, buying a like, story. yeah, you're buying a story and you're buying an experience. And, mm -hmm. and you know, like those people who purchased on day one of our Kickstarter campaign on May 6th of last year, they just got their products literally this week. Like we just had the containers unload at the port of Long Beach. And, you know, that's another story too. I don't know if we've got the time to get into, but the ports <laughs> were completely congested. There was like yeah, 35 to 40 ships sitting outside of Long Beach. And right now, if you try to order a lot of things, they're backordered for months. And, mm -hmm. you know, that played into our, our, our coming in the market plan. And, and all these like things that the year of 2020 threw at us were curveballs that, one, many people had never deal, dealt with. Two, I certainly didn't know how to deal with them. Mm -hmm. But you kind of have to just take this nimble uh, mindset and, and focus on, all right, well, this is the problem. This is how I think we should solve it. Let's try it. And if it doesn't solve the problem, all right, that did not lead to the solution. Let's try right. another one. And you just go through this kind of constant level of persistence where you're just like, I, I liken it to traveling, you know, and it's really easy to do when you have to do it it's harder to do when you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're traveling and you're traveling on a trip when there's like a guided tour and the tour bus is driving you around and you get to see like the Louvre and, and the Eiffel Tower and then they drop you off at a PSG soccer game, like you kind of just make it to the bus at eight o'clock in the morning, the ride. right? Yeah. Yep. You're on the ride. If you're traveling solo, like 
and not even solo, but if you're traveling without a guide, you're in a group of people, like you guys are making decisions on the fly. Like you're mm-hmm. like, okay, like who, well, who's got a map? Who's, who's good with direction? Um, what can we use to get there? Are we going to Uber? I don't know if they even have Ubers in this town. Um, do they have bird scooter? Like you, like you start to like figure out the solutions to get to your goals mm-hmm. and you're doing it only because that's like what you have to do. Right. And there's an element to entrepreneurship where you just end up doing things not because you want to, because you have to. And mm-hmm. I always like to say, if like, if it's something that you have to do, it should be something that you should look at and say, this is something that I get to do. The world has conspired in some sort of way where the challenge that I'm faced with today is to figure out how to load as many chairs in a 40-foot container as I possibly can. <laughs> as fast as possible. Um, We're getting cousins. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And like, Uh, Like you just start to figure those things out. And as you start to figure those things out, you start to get into this like momentum that a lot of people call flow state and you Mm -hmm. start solving other problems and the next problem, the next problem. And that's what I think is like the greatest buzz um, about entrepreneurship for me um, is like really just the buzz that I get when it's like in flow state, solving this problem. It's like when you're watching a movie and you watch a hacker like set up his computer, he does like the finger keyboard stretch and Mm -hmm. he starts blasting his music and he's like all right let's hack this company mm-hmm. today like like you right. get into that zone and you just start solving problems and as you're solving those problems you're like yes the to do the list is checking off or checking these boxes these things are getting done and you know like it took us a year of getting over these hurdles and figuring out our supply chain and whatnot but we're now getting product into the hands of people who are our customers and they're giving us feedback and the first week has been just incredible we've gotten so much positive feedback from people saying you know like waited a year for this it's been worth the wait love it great mm-hmm. quality like things that were like yes like this is what we wanted people to see and feel when they've received our product and now we're super excited to see you know where they take it and what they do right. with it and um you know we're running a social media campaign um, every month where there'll be a chance for people who are customers of our brand to win cool prizes by showing us like where they park it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's photos, videos, stories, whatever it is, like share those with our brand. We want to then promote those stories within our own brand to kind of keep in line with our mission and make it about the experience. And, uh, it's exciting now mm-hmm. that, that we're getting to that stage where we get to really, you know, see and feel and, and, and meet with people who have used our product in the way that we intended it to be used. Yeah. It seems to me like you feel as though you have a responsibility to these people to provide the best experience possible, you know, and that, that really sticks out because with a Kickstarter campaign, um, I've never done one of those before, but all of a sudden you get dumped with, you know, almost 500 grand, which is incredible. But at the same time, you're like, ah, shit, now do I, now do I do, you know? So what was that? What's that feeling like? And all of a sudden you're like, all right, well, what's your first step? Because wheels are turning. There, you, you got to produce these chairs. So like, what does that first phone call look like? The first call in regarding to that first step, it happened actually on day three of our Kickstarter campaign because our first day we did, we did a huge first three days. We broke a hundred K in the first three days and we were like, Oh my God, awesome. we did in 30 days what we were about to do in 30. And I got on the phone with, with Jason and I said, Hey, like this is happening. It's real. <laughs> we got to start the process better now than waiting 35 days. Mm-hmm. And he's like, all right, perfect. So Jason gets us on a meeting with Nate and we start diving through like, okay, like, what do we got to do here? And he's like, all right, well, we need the most recent like mock-ups and renderings. We need to start talking. We need to start sourcing factories. So I'm going to put one of my team members 
in charge of, you know, talking to like 10 to 15 different manufacturers and seeing, you know, who can take these renderings and build us samples. Mm-hmm. So we got a bunch of samples built. Then we got those samples, samples shipped to the U.S. Um, we evaluated all of them, figured out what was good, what was bad. Um, and that ultimately led us to figuring out who our partner was going to be for manufacturing. And then from there, it became like, it became so fine tooth combed, um, which is where mm. I really started to appreciate what engineers do and, and product designers, because like we were trying to figure out so many little pieces, like, like what's the thickness of the webbing going to be? What's the exact, um, you know, aluminum we're going to use? Are we going to powder coat these or mm-hmm. are they going to be anodized? Are, is the wood going to be a birch, a maple, a bamboo, like, like you're going through all these, all these like tiny decisions have to make all the way down to like what the screws are made out of. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, right. I'm not a product guy. Uh, what should we use? And they're like, we would (laughs) recommend these. And I'm like, okay, what's the benefit of those? Like, and they're like, these are the benefits. I'm like, okay, what are the detriments of those? And like, these are the detriments. I'm like, okay, well we can't use those because those will rust. Like that was not allowed. And and Mm -hmm. so you have to go through all these like really minute, like process pieces to basically build the SOP or standard operating procedure of how your product's going to be built and what's going to be used to do it. And that Mm -hmm. takes a lot of time and trying to coordinate that in a pandemic across a continent um, and an ocean um, with a bit of a language barrier. um, It was definitely super challenging, but at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. like we met, we met every week on Wednesday at 7 PM like clockwork for an hour, we went through everything that was updated and new. What were the new challenges? What were the new decisions? And um, it's resulted in, in a really great product and we're really proud of it. Uh, but that was like, you know, those are, I guess those are steps one through five. You said, what's the first step? That, that's <laughs> yeah. kind of, that's kind of the path that you go on. Right. And you're right. You do have this responsibility to your customers to be like, you've entrusted me to do this. And it's my job now to do what you expect of me. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of businesses forget. And you touched on this about a few minutes ago where you talked about how businesses get caught up on the dollar sign and they forget that the customer is what's important. And Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos talks about it all the time. And even athletes talk about it all the time. And athletes don't deal with customers in the same sense that a business does. But athletes, I remember, I specifically remember, you know, the way that Derek Jeter would speak about Yankee fans, right? And when you speak Mm -hmm. about your fans and your fans and your customers, in my opinion, they're the same. Um, Sure, I agree. And in the way that that Derek Jeter would speak about them, it made me as a California kid who like did not have any reason to want to like the Yankees. It made me love him. And I was obsessed with him as a kid growing up mm-hmm. playing baseball before I was a server. I was just like, Derek Jeter is my idol. I got like 17 books and I got a signed baseball in here that I bought on eBay. Like, like Derek Jeter was my guy. Yeah. But it's because of the He's focus the that he put is because of the focus that he put on the fans and the, and the impact that they played and who he is and who he was. And it, it made you feel this connection to him. I don't know him. I don't know. My likelihood of meeting him is like probably zero, but as a brand, right. Like you want that engagement. You want people to feel that way. And businesses, sometimes mm-hmm. they get too caught up in the dollar sign. And like you see this with, I think um, you see this with athletes when they do like holdouts and all that stuff. It's like, hey man, you're getting, play, you're getting paid to play a sport. This isn't a, like, I guess at the end of the day, like you are getting paid to play a sport so you can hold out for the money. But like, 
Like you're there to fulfill your mission. Is your mission to win a championship or is your mission to be the number one paid position player in your league? Um, as a business, are you right. there to be the number one grossing revenue driver in your industry? Or are you there to impact people's lives positively? And um, there was a client mm -hmm. that I worked for. Um, there was a client that I worked for whose motto was ensure that every customer is glad that they met us. And mm -hmm. they did a really good job of that on the front end. They did a very poor job of that on the back end. And I won't get into who the mm -hmm. company is. They don't exist anymore. And I think part of the reason they don't exist anymore mm -hmm. is because of that. And um, they became very focused on, they would say that in the company meetings, but then as soon as you'd go into the offices, there's like charts everywhere. Like this is where it we're at for it. weekly revenue and daily revenue and monthly revenue. And these are our, our top sales performers. And I guess sales sales guys get really motivated by that. They, they like the numbers, they're competitive. It's a good right. thing for the sales team, but it needs to stick within the sales team. It doesn't need to proliferate to customer service mm -hmm. or to project management or to product or to marketing because the reason why all those people are right. there are to facilitate the mission. It's sales job to drive the revenue to continue facilitating the mission like we spoke on earlier. And I think a lot of businesses mm -hmm. forget that. And that's one of the things that that is always going to be something that we're focusing on is that you know we may not be the largest revenue driver in the world. If we're a publicly traded company, and we have to pick between shareholders and stakeholders. I'm going to pick the stakeholders. I'm going to pick the internal people within the company. I'm not going to pick the guy on Wall Street who wants right. to make a quick buck. Like you're, we, we probably, if the if Parkit IPOs, I don't even know if I would necessarily be the guy leading that ship. You know, like that's kind of where my mindset mm -hmm. is. Um, who knows? Things could change in 10, 15, 20 years. I don't know. But sure. that's the, the the mindset that I want to always make sure is that we're adhering to is that we're here to facilitate that mission of enjoying the exploration. Yeah, well, I love how you brought out the the analogy of Derek Jeter because I'm a I'm a Red Sox fan, you know. So I I and you know, you, you you hate that birth, you love them. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. At, at birth, I'm you know destined to hate the Yankees just by default. Uh, you know, growing up, going up to Red Sox games every summer here in Fenway, um, but you love Derek Jeter, right? Because he's Derek Jeter is the man, you know, he's, he's a legend, but what I think is really interesting is, and I guess the same could be said about Michael Jordan, um, is these guys, right. They lasted, you know, they didn't have just short careers, right. They, they truly built a brand that lasts because they gave a shit about their customers and about their fans, you know, and you see companies like Yeti, right. Yeti has been around for a really long time and they make a great product, but they also give back a lot. You know, and I had this guy, mm -hmm. Michael Sims, on the podcast who founded Hook and Gaff Watch. And his motto was, you know, build a brand that lasts, right? And, and stand the test of time. So a little punny, but it worked, you know? And the, the thing that I pull from you is, you know, that's your goal is to really build a brand that lasts. And, and, and to say that it, it hasn't already would be false because this started three years ago, you know? And I think that's a really big testament to the fact that this stuff takes time, you know? And, mm -hmm. With time comes patience. So how has your mindset been throughout this whole process? Because, I mean, you can say, it, it's yeah, you got to be patient. It takes time. You got to enjoy the process. But there's moments where you're like, man, the process sucks right now, right? Like, I don't want to be patient. I, I kind of want this thing to work. So what is the, like, what, what has been your process to really stick true to who you are, both the brand, but you as a person, and then say to yourself, man, this is going to be a process, right? This is, this is going on three years almost. 
and we're just now coming to market? Like, what has that experience been? So I'm, I'm glad you posed this question and I have the perfect analogy for it. And uh, the story that comes to mind about it too was where, where I actually came to realize it was I had a client that I was working for and they wanted everything rushed. Mm-hmm. It was like, rush, 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 rush. We need this rush. We need this rush. We need this rush. We need this rushed. And we were driving out to Zion for a family camping trip. Um, and I was just getting blown up by this client being like, we need this done. We need this done. We need this done. And I'm like, it's not going to get done. Like, I need you guys to recognize that good work takes time. And Mm -hmm. like, I'm having that thought process while I'm like stressed out and frustrated in the car, driving through the desert and we get to Zion. And I don't know if any, if you've been to Zion in Utah, but angels landing, it's awesome. Perfect. So you've, you've, you've seen it. And you, mm-hmm. you get into Utah and like, as soon as you cross into Utah, like the landscape changes, like there's just something mm-hmm. about like, it's, it's almost like the way they drew state lines are like, yeah, Arizona, a bunch of dirt, a big Canyon, uh, Utah. <laughs> Whoa. Weird red mountains. And flat. Yeah. And, and it's like, they're like, we're drawing the line here. Uh, there's just something here. We're drawing the line. And so you mm-hmm. cross into Utah and you start to see this like beautiful landscape start to, to present itself to you. And you drive in the Zion and you make this like, kind of like you follow this river, which is the river that made zion canyon mm-hmm. and you start to hook this left hand turn as you get into like the town and you get your first real look at like the wall that reads all the way down and weaves in and out and, and, and you know does what the the canyon wall does if you've seen it yeah and that leads incredible. all the way down that leads all the way down to the narrows too which is one of the most incredible things i think i've ever seen in, in regards to like what it builds mm-hmm. and how it's so different from one end all the way to the other and we're pulling in and the sun's setting and i'm looking out the window and i'm like this took millions of years to build and it's one of the most beautiful places in the country. Mm-hmm. And it reminds you that great work takes time. Like, like the grand Canyon wasn't built overnight. Zion wasn't built overnight. What this mm-hmm. client wants from me cannot be built in two hours. It needs like proper thought and understanding and Cause, cause everything that we do from an artistic perspective and from a brand perspective, it has layers. It's going to affect different people differently because of different personality types and whatever. But right. you kind of have to think about how all that comes together into into one all those ingredients come together into one thing. And I remember just looking at the walls in Zion and being like, this client doesn't get it. I don't think I'm supposed to keep working mm-hmm. with this client. I gotta I gotta focus on the things that that give me value and, and make me feel feel the pride of the, the work that I'm proud of. And it's gonna take time to be really good. And you just have to be okay with it. And mm-hmm. You know, if, if we were to run water down our driveway, we wouldn't notice a single thing um, in the span of one day. But you look at Zion and you think of how long that water has been running through there and what it's created. And it's incredible. And one of the things I think as an mm-hmm. entrepreneur that was really good for me was having that experience with that client at that time. Because at that time, we were still between the first prototype and the second prototype in terms of product design. And mm-hmm. it just reinforced like, the next one's probably not going to be perfect either, but take it one day at a time, figure out ways to continually improve either, you know, the brand, the the process, the product, whatever it is, always find something that can be improved and uh, just keep working at that little by little. And my dad had a saying that a little bit over time adds up to a lot. And I don't know if it's necessarily his saying, but mm-hmm. that's who I learned it from. And it's true. A little bit over time adds up to a lot. I look at our website right now and I think to myself, wow, our website's looking pretty good. I, I couldn't have turned that website yeah. in a day. It's taken us two years to get to this point in our website, you know, 
there's yeah. everything like that. Great work takes time and patience and uh, discipline. And those three things, if, if you know, used together in our harmony can, can create some pretty cool stuff. So uh, we're glad that it worked yeah. out for us with our product. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it, it seems to be working out really well. And, you know, it, it's so true. Like I, you know, I, I'm a competitive weightlifter on top of all the other things I've been doing. And, um, that sport in particular is such a analogy for life and such an analogy for patience, right? Cause mm -hmm. you take these two things, both the art of the sport, which is challenging of itself and learning a brand new skill. And then you have the, the load and fighting gravity every day. And it's this juxtaposition of the two that breeds the sport of weightlifting. And, you know, you see guys that are going to the Olympics. They just chose the Olympic team a few days ago. And, uh, you know, they, they didn't start yesterday. Let's just put it that way. This was mm -hmm. years and years and years and trial and error. And, you know, it's a testament to what it takes to really build a great business and a brand that lasts. So, you know, going through this whole process, do you think there's been one thing that really sticks out in your mind as to, hey man, if I had to take one thing away from this, if this all left yesterday, what would I, what would I learn from it? That's a great question. If this all left, uh, let's say tomorrow there's a nuclear war and, and there's no more park it, no one's going outside, whatever. Uh, outside what is gone. does I, not exist. Yeah, outside <laughs> is gone. Oh, it sounds like March 18th in 2020. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> no. um, what would I say I've learned from this? I would say that I've learned that authentic work um, and basically aligning yourself with a mission and, and a purpose in association with that work, you're really empowered to do whatever you want. Um, you know, there's a lot of variables that come into play when you say that on the surface, it's a very simple statement. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say you have an idea for, you know, the next greatest camera feature that someone's going to create. Um, if you believe that you can do it and it's in alignment with your passions and it can become your purpose. And people spend a lot of time talking about like, find your purpose in life. And there's a lot of quotes that people talk about where it's like, like, you don't really choose your purpose, your purpose chooses you. And I think there's an element where, where both of those are actually really more of a 50 50. Like, like, uh, I okay. always knew I wanted to do something outdoors and exciting. And, and I, I love sports and I love surfing and I love traveling and I love everything that comes with that. And I don't know exactly how that became to be. It came to be like very young. Um, but the business side of these things and the decisions that I get to make has been definitely like almost a, some sort of a calling for me where it's like, this is what you get to do because you've made these decisions. And that's led me to like mm -hmm. the, the roundabout way that this is how park it and the, what we stand for as a business and who I, what I like to do with my time get to be married together. And, and that drives my lifestyle mm -hmm. and, and who I am and, and what I get to do. And I think that if a lot more people were empowered with that type of understanding, that a lot more people would be willing to take that risk. I think our school system um, has done a very unique spin on entrepreneurship where they talk very heavily mm. about how launching a business is very likely to fail. 
And I don't mm-hmm. think that's the way that we should be teaching um, people who, who, you know, might not fit into the system perfectly in terms of like, maybe they don't like getting good grades because they hate math. Maybe they're super artistic. You know, like Albert Einstein said, uh, maybe it was Einstein. I, I'm blanking on, on, it's also a meme that I saw. So who knows if the meme's even real. <laughs> but um, he said, he's like, a fish is an idiot if you put them on a, if you put them at a park, like something like that, like a fish doesn't belong in a park. You got to put a fish in the ocean. That's where a fish is a genius. Right. And nine out of 10 entrepreneurs may fail, but the nine that failed are just one step closer now to finding where they're going to be a genius. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that like from a, from a education standpoint, no one ever told you that no one taught you that you, you, you didn't get taught in business school that the business you run will fail and you'll be done. You were taught that, or no, I'm sorry, you were taught that the business that you ran would fail and then after that you'd have to go find a job. Well, that's mm-hmm. true. Like I started I started a couple businesses before Parkit and to be honest, we had no idea what we were doing. I don't even know if I would technically classify them as businesses. We filed them as LLCs with the state of California because <laughs> we thought we needed to, but like yeah. They, they they didn't generate any revenue. We we never figured out how to monetize any of them. They never gained any traction. But each one of those entrepreneurial ideas led to the next one, which led to the next one, which led to like the understanding of, cool, we've learned a few things. But now how do we apply what we've learned to the next right. one? And, uh, you know, like it, it touches on what I was saying with persistence. And I think that if all of this were to go away tomorrow, the one thing that I've learned is that it's really your own decision every day to wake up and choose. I'm going to solve these problems because one, you have the mindset that you have chosen that you like to solve these problems. Two, they're in alignment with your mission, and three, they're the the mm-hmm. they're in alignment with your values. And if you're doing that, I think you're going to feel fulfilled in a way that you necessarily won't. Um, some people do from a job. I never was one of those guys. I think that's a, a definite thing for me. But that's an aspect of kind of the, what I've learned the most, I think, is that if, if let's say Parkit went away tomorrow, I could probably start a new business and a new brand and bring a new product to market and do something along those lines. And it could be completely different ethos behind mm-hmm. it. But I know what foundation I want, I would want it to be. And I know I would know how to do it. Love that. Love that. Well, you know, Stephen, it's been a, it's been a pleasure being able to chat with you. Um, you know, with the outdoor industry kind of on just, full throttle right now it's it seems to me like there's no better time to be launching what you're doing so in a lot of ways you know covid i think was an unfortunate circumstance but what it really did was it got people out outdoors and made people realize like you know life is short like let's go out and enjoy the outdoors let's go to zion national park because it's gorgeous let's take that backpacking trip that we haven't taken and let's go you know, let's go utilize Park It and, and explore somewhere different. So with that said, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about it? How can they get a chair? Like how can get people learn more? Yeah, so our chairs are for sale on our website at www.parkitmovement.com. Um, to get in touch with me, simply just fill out a little form on our connect. We have a chat slash a support page on our website. Fill out the form, shoot out the email. Um, most of those emails get forwarded to me. Um, and so if there's anything that anyone wants to chat about regarding the brand or reach out for partnership opportunities, um, you know, kind of we're in a stage, like you mentioned, where the outdoor industry is on fire and uh, we're new and we're here and we're excited to to kind of stake our claim in it and have a lot of fun doing it. So uh, 
find us on our website. It's the easiest way. You can also find us on Instagram at Park It Movement. Um, just hit us up in the DMs and uh, we, we get back to you pretty quick. Slide on in. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thanks again for coming on and uh, we'll catch you soon. And that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of the podcast. It was a real pleasure to be able to talk with Stephen. If you want to learn more about Park It and how you can get involved, head on over to the link below. You can check out the entire blog post and write up on our website. And you can also get a sneak peek of the new website that is going to be dropping very soon. So make sure to tune into that. And uh, we will see you on the next episode of the podcast. We have some great guests in the lineup, including a new segment that is all about the people who are getting involved on the water. So not only are we touching base on the brands, but we're also starting to touch base on the people, some people that I've gotten to rub elbows with and, and learn all about in their lives and how they've built them along the coastline. So that and more coming up on Along the Keel. And I hope you guys, as always, work hard, do good, be incredible, and have an awesome day.